Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to Work Minus. Today, our guest is David Heinemeyer Hansen. He's the co-founder and CTO at Basecamp, the creator of Ruby on Rails, and a Le Mans class-winning racing driver. Hi, David. How are you today? Good, good. How are you? Excellent, excellent. We're very, very excited to have you on. There's a lot we're going to learn from you. We're going to dive into a lot of what you have written in this book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. So that's the title of the book. But let's define crazy. We're not talking about crazy people, but crazy things, correct? Yes. And that was actually, um, we had a bit of a discussion before we switched to this title. The original title of the book was actually The Calm Company. Ah, yeah. And we had a thing going inside the company at Basecamp to discuss the both the title of the book and the cover of the book. And the comp company ended up soliciting a lot of um, designs for the cover of the book. They were all about people sitting in Zen poses and um, nice pictures of uh, Zen gardens and stuff like that. And, and we realized it doesn't actually cover our tone. Both Jason and I are not just sitting calmly by hoping for calm to happen. We're actually sort of kind of angry about the fact that calm <laughs> isn't happening, yeah. that calm is such a rarity. So we switched the titles around and um, it definitely had some controversy within the, the company, that, that word crazy. And I think completely justifiably so. If you're calling people crazy, that's, uh, that's not okay at all. Um, we were sort of going for the standard answer that we kept hearing, that we keep hearing. When we talk to people and we ask them, hey, so how's work? Oh, it's crazy at work. It's just such a common reply. Um, and we really wanted to anger on that because this whole notion that it has to be crazy at work or that it's good that it's crazy at work was a key target we wanted to shoot down in this book. Yeah, and it's great. I think it, it hits on that. And we obviously are being sensitive to that word and everything, but there are a lot of things that seem crazy. And even the classical definition of that, about how stressed out we are at work. We have companies that are valuing it at billions of dollars that don't turn a profit. We have lots of discrimination and oppression that continue on. So we're almost to 2020. It almost feels like we should be better at this by now. We should have like gotten over some of these things and, and really established a better culture, but we're, we're almost in deeper than we were before. So what, what's your take on what are the biggest causes of how we got to this place? Well, I think you're absolutely right that this should be better. And this book and our advocacy on this topic is really based on that disappointment that it isn't. And not just the disappointment that it isn't better, but that it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Right. Um, when you look back at uh, working hours or any of these other metrics that you can track over long periods of time, people are working more than ever. They're sleeping less than ever. There are all these factors that conspire to make it absolutely crazy at work. And for us, we kind of wanted to diagnose this in two major ways. One is a diagnosis of how we spend our time, the fact that we actually squander our time, and the reason so many people feel a need to work 50, 60, 80 in some bizarro cases, even more than 100 hours a week, is because that the time spent is poorly spent. It's chopped up in tiny little work moments rather than giving someone a work day. It's incredibly difficult at most companies to get into a great groove to do deep work. 
there's just myriads of interruptions. If you have the misfortune of working in an open office, there's all the physical interruptions of that setup. If you have the misfortune of working at a company that uses chat as their primary communication platform, you have the uh, pressures of constantly having to keep up with that conveyor belt. So a big section of the book is how can we spend the time better? And the premise being that if we do, if we find ways, and we have, and other people have, this is not impossible. This is not uh, a myth. This is not uh, stuff of dreams. 40 hours is plenty, and eight hours a day is enough. This notion that you have to turn your entire life into an altar for work is just crazy. And then the second part of the book is to ask why. Why do people feel compelled to spend this much time at work, even if they spend it poorly? Why do companies feel compelled to pressure or incentivize or cajole or, or trick workers into spending this much time at work? They do it because they have unrealistic, outsized ambitions. And I think we're used to thinking of ambition as purely a positive word or Usually you'd say, oh, that person is really ambitious and that's a compliment. Right. But there is a point where ambition chip sort of falls over and becomes a bad thing. When every single technology company that gets started is on a mission to become a billion-dollar unicorn, ambition is, is out of control. Um, when everyone is constantly focused on beating the next quarterly earnings and making sure you're posting these amazing growth metrics, ambition is out of control. In fact, this whole notion that growth has to be something that's placed above all else is is out of control. So we present our alternative at Basecamp, which is not growth. (laughs) In (laughs) fact, several years ago, we made the conscious choice at Basecamp to say, do you know what? Basecamp is big enough. Around 50 people, that's the size of company that both Jason and I enjoy to run. It's the size of company our employees enjoy to work at. And we can do the kind of work that we all enjoy doing and servicing our uh, customers and our users in the best ways possible. This is good enough. So we essentially instituted a mild hiring freeze for the company, not because we were in dire straits, which is usually the time that companies institute hiring freezes, but because things were going swimmingly well. The year we instituted the hiring freeze, uh, freeze, Basecamp had just posted its highest revenue numbers ever in the history of the company. And um, so it, it wasn't that we had to do this, but we wanted to do this. And even having that conversation of when, when is it enough? When is the company big enough? When are we doing enough products? When are we servicing enough customers? That is almost an entirely absent discussion for most companies, for most entrepreneurs, and for most executives. So we wanted to put that out there and say, like, hey, have that discussion. You might find that you are well satisfied, far below this uh, mythical achievement of unicorn status. Um, so that's really the, the two uh, main uh, lines of inquiry that we started with the book, uh, how to curb your ambition and how to defend your time. And obviously, we dive into all the sort of supporting elements of that, how you create a culture that allows you to pull back on ambition, allows you to uh, respect people's time, how you deal with the process of actually making that happen. How do you 
become a company that is still highly productive, um, doing meaningful, impactful work if you're saying 40 hours is enough. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the gist of it. Yeah, and it's a fantastic book. I read it in about two hours, just sat down and, and went through the whole thing. It was just really encouraging for me to read. I like to use this word myth because there's the myth of the billion dollar unicorn out there. But then in some ways, you guys have, have created yourselves as a myth of like, no, there, there's not really a company out there that can really just stop at 50 employees or, or can work 40 hours a week. Like this is impossible. So tell us more about, do you guys feel like you're living this mythic life that everyone around you is just surrounded by these crazy things around them and, and you're living in a bubble that's protected because you've done so much? Or do you feel like there, there are other people that are actually out there doing this too? Yeah, it's one of those things that's, that's funny. We get this all the time. For example, when we say it, um, when the company started, we were also just working 40 hours a week. People will literally not believe us. They will yeah. literally think we're lying. As in, no, that's just something you're saying. You were really working 80-hour weeks, right? And we're like, first of all, how can I disprove that to you? I, I don't know what else I can say then. No, we worked 40 hours a week. And since the inception, in fact, Basecamp, our primary product was created with me as the sole technical person for the first version that we released to the public on 10 hours a week. Wow. I was going to school. I was doing other things. It's actually quite amazing what you can do with just a little time if you spend it well. And this spending it well is also not this mythical thing. It's not because we walk around thinking we're super geniuses. It's simply uh, about having some some core heuristics about uh, how time is spent well. And the key part of that is continuous time. If you have 10 hours and you get to spend it in two five-hour blocks... It is amazing mm. what you can accomplish in that time. Yeah. If you have 10 hours and you get to spend it in 30-minute blocks, it's almost equally amazing how little you can get done, which is usually absolutely nothing. Um, so I think the other factor of this is that Basecamp, obviously, is an American company. We speak primarily to American entrepreneurs. And there is a culture in the U.S. that um, makes it seem like it's a fairy tale, what we talk about. But I'm Danish. I grew up in Denmark. I lived there until I was 25. I worked for a lot of Danish companies. This is absolutely the norm. Like This is not sort of some wild idea that companies can work in this way or that a technology company can, can, can work just 40 hours a week. This is what everyone does in large parts of the world. Um, in many ways, uh, this workaholism or workism, as it's been called, is a uniquely American affliction in the sort of Western world. Now, there are plenty of other places. China is a great example that I usually pull out as a, as a scare example. They have this idea of 996, that you work um, from nine to nine, six days a week. Wow. I look at a model like that and go like, wow, that just sounds like institutionalized human rights abuses. Other people, including venture capitalists in the US, look at that with sort of just sparkles in their eyes and think, wow, this is amazing. Look how hard the Chinese are working. Hey, hint, hint. If you don't adopt something like 996 for your own company, you may get left behind. The Chinese are going to come get you. Um, and I just go like, this is perverse. This is disgusting, actually, because this is people's lives that we're talking about. So that's a, a big part of the motivation for this book is to, first of all, say, this isn't that abnormal. We are not that abnormal. We are very plain in 
in a in a different part of the world um, that we actually should look more to for healthy ideas on how to work and how to structure society and and so forth. And this push for ever more work, ever less sleep, ever more fawning over Chinese nine nine six schedules. That's the true sickness, and we need to push back against that. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. Let's talk about this idea of good enough. Once you kind of reach a point, I like what you said, like that you and Jason figured out that, you know, 50 people seem like a great size. And for most owners, entrepreneurs out there, they feel like, okay, 50 is just somewhere I'm going to have to cross. I might enjoy that a lot, but I have to get bigger. So I just enjoy it while it's there and it goes on. It's kind of like raising kids that, you know, they're only going to be small once. But you guys have actually taken the idea that, no, these are the, the good old days that we'll talk about later or right now. So let's hold on to that. And let's say this is how we're, we're able to do that. Was that a really difficult decision to do, just mentally trying to get out of that model? Or was it pretty obvious? It's like, you know, we just want to stay here. It was very easy in many ways. And I don't say that in a flip way. I say that because both Jason and I, I mean, we've been in business for 20 years. We've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs over those 20 years. Uh, and the stories we would keep hearing over and over and over again were all these stories about these entrepreneurs loving those early days, loving when they knew everyone in the company, when they were still involved with the product, um, when their entire workday was not just one long scheduled meeting chopped up into various different bits and pieces. And they would just sort of reminisce about that. And it was like, wow, wasn't that amazing? And every single time I'd hear that story, I'd go like, why didn't you stay there? Like wherever you are now reminiscing about those days, that doesn't sound great, right? Like, I mean, this is me projecting some of my sensibilities onto this. There are plenty of entrepreneurs who get their kick out of growing the thing as large as they can, or they sure. like being in charge of thousands of people or whatever, whatever, whatever. But I heard this story enough time, Jason and I heard this story enough time to go like, you know what? That sounds, that sounds great. Can't we just hit pause, say this is enough and stop here? And the thing is, it's not exactly like that's some sort of unique idea either. The fact that the baker who likes to make bread wants to just have their one bakery and not open a chain of 45 and deal with all the shit that comes with dealing with 45 bakeries instead of pounding bread mm -hmm. or dough. Um, that's not exactly something we look at as a, as a weird thing normally. We'd look at that with actually aspiration and say like, they've really found something that they like doing. They want to keep doing that. And they are. You can look at so many other institutions, uh, whether it's hollowed educational institutions, Cambridge or Harvard or whatever. They're not like, oh, let's open more franchises. Let's just get more people in here. No, growth in itself is not the end-all be-all, except in a lot of startups, and especially in a lot of tech startups, that growth really is the singular thing that gives the pursuit purpose. And I find that to be just an outright moral failing. I find it to be an economic failing. I find it to be a societal failing that we've incentivized an entire industry around growth, growth, growth. Yeah. Because what usually happens um, is that the dreams of unicornness do not come true, right? Right. There's only a tiny handful of companies who reach that status. And then almost by definition, by setting up the game in such a way that that's the end destination, that's the success point, we've labeled everyone else failures. And that's actually the literal label, well, more or less, that we've often had attached to our business. 
that when we tell of our business and we say that we reached enough, people go like, oh, isn't that cute? Like, mm. That's a nice lifestyle business. First of all, who the fuck uses the word lifestyle business as a prerogative? Like, what is it? What's wrong about having a lifestyle? What's wrong about having um, other interests outside of work? I mean, that just is fascinating to me, right? But there's just also this looking down upon a business that would choose to do that as though they were sort of opting out of reality. Mm. So that was the choice that we made. We've been really pleased with that choice. I mean, I try to set things up and, and I've had the same conversation with Jason. Let's set up Basecamp in such a way that we would actually want to work here in 30 years. That's the other thing about the general pursuit to become a unicorn. In a lot of cases, it's a sprint to... Well, sprint, if you can call it a decade's worth of slaving world <laughs> work a sprint. Um, but it, it's a, a, a time box, right? Where you're rushing to some destination and then you're done. You cash out. You sell the company or you go public and someone else has to take over. In a very, very few number of cases, um, that's not the case. Like the original founders stay on and they, they find their calling and, and they go with the thing. But for a lot of the majority, I'd probably say that either it ends in, in tears that the thing failed to live up to these success criteria, or it does succeed and they still go like, all right, I'm done. Let's start the new thing. Um, I really like uh, Jason... Freed, my business partner, on his Twitter profile, he says, um, not a serial entrepreneur. Mm, yeah. Right? Everyone in, in the tech industry seems to be so obsessed with like, well, doing it once is lucky, doing it twice means you're good. Like they have such a the chip, and maybe I'm projecting here, but the chip on their shoulder in, in, in that statement just seems to be like, I have to prove to someone else that I'm really good. Yeah. You know what? I don't have to prove to anyone that I'm really good. Do you know what? If Basecamp was just because we were lucky, well, fuck yeah. Great. <laughs> like, hallelujah. Why would we want to give that up? What if I, I am just lucky? Entirely possible, by the way, overwhelmingly possible, at least in the terms of reaching a success to the levels of base camp I've been. Why would I want to give that up just to have some chance of proving myself to who? For what? Why? Seems crazy to me. Yep. I like it. All right. Let's shift to the actual technology a little bit. When we look at social media platforms that are out there, I think originally, I believe somehow that they were intended just to build connection to make people get to be closer and share ideas. But obviously, oh, please. we're way far away from that. <laughs> also, no, they yeah. really weren't, right? I, and I think that's actually important. I think it's important there that we stop giving entrepreneurs to come out of venture capital uh, funded startups that extreme naive benefit of the doubt that they really truly just had the noblest of intentions when they were started out. And somehow along the way, they just got utterly corrupted. I fall into that trap myself. But if you actually look at the origin stories of, say, Facebook, what did that start out as? Like, it's a pretty well-known and do uh, documented origin story, right? Like, it started out as a hot or not site, not exactly the best of intentions. How did it get that much data? Well, because in the words of Zuckerberg, because the dumb fucks gave it to me, I don't know why, right? So a lot of these um, origin stories, they're, they're not exactly that um, pristine or that pure. Good, good. Well, it's good to establish that, that we're not dealing with angels that had some problems along the way. Which, by the way, sorry to stop you again. Just take that word, right? Angels. How do most uh, seed uh, investors characterize themselves? How is the whole industry characterized? Yeah, angel investments, right? How fucking self-serving <laughs> can you be? How self-grandizing can you be to pick the word for what you do, which is to invest money in a bunch of startups as an angel? 
oh, geez, there's just so much to unpack in that world that, um, I mean, I, I've been picking at it for 20 years and I feel like uh, barely scratching the surface still. Yeah. So we're going to move from social tools to business tools, which have the same story behind them. We're looking at trying to just sell it to businesses now. How can business tools end up really doing the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing, which is to be helping people to work better. But yet so many of the tools we use, we talked about messaging platforms, you talked about all sorts of other things. They actually do the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing and helping us be more organized. We are, we're spending more money, we're using fancier tools, but we're not really any better at work than before. So how can we get around that? First, we have to critically examine the metrics and the success criteria that these tools and businesses are holding themselves accountable to. And if you look at a lot of these um, tools that are chasing hypergrowth, one of the key metrics is this word engagement. Hmm. And engagement is often sort of a fancy euphemism for just hours spent. That simply getting someone to spend more hours in your tool has become a shorthand for my tool is great. And in fact, I'd go as far as to say at Basecamp, it's a little bit the opposite. The less time you get to spend in Basecamp just being in the tool for the sake of being in the tool, the better it is, right? Like having someone trapped inside a Basecamp for eight hours a day, that doesn't actually sound that great. There's not a whole lot of people <laughs> where, where that equals productive work. But there's plenty of other platforms, uh, chat tools in particular, who use that metric engagement as some sort of a metric of success because they think they, that means, and they're probably right, that it means that the customer is sticky, which by the way, what a nasty term again, right? That you want your, your customer to be stuck in your spider web, like that that's so sticky that they can't get out. Um, that whole idea that you capture customers and you have to capture as many of them as possible and you have to make your product so sticky that they can't escape, it's just not a value system that we believe in at Basecamp. And we want to believe that we put out a product that, by the way, does not really benefit from network effects. So one customer can choose to use Basecamp and another can choose to use something else and, and we can all be happy. And that that's fine. That we don't need to capture 100% of the market. In fact, if, if we simply appeal to what? 1% or 0.001% of everyone who needs software to manage their communications or their projects inside of companies, um, that's fine. That's plenty. Um, and that that level of ambition allows us to design different software. Because when you're not designing software for maximum engagement, there's just all sorts of different choices that you make. For example, at Basecamp, one of the features we have in Basecamp 3 is called Work Can Wait. And it's literally a feature that makes the product less sticky for people outside of normal working hours. You have work can wait on and the Basecamp app won't send you notifications after, uh, I believe it is uh, 5 p.m. or something like that. And it won't send any notifications on weekends. That's a way where we're essentially sort of harming the stickiness of the product because we believe that it actually leads to better outcome. That people shouldn't be pulled into work, whether that work is in base camp or somewhere else, at all these odd hours of the day. One of the leading um, causes of all this overwork is that we have a million different pieces of software and electronics that can constantly rope us back in. Back in the day, when you used to work in an office, all your files were at the office, you'd sort of close your file cabinet at five o'clock and, and go home. Like work would not pull you back in. Like it would really have to be an emergency before that landline would ring, right? right? Versus now, emails, 
chat, all these tools, they're constantly bombarding your phone. And most people, they share one phone for both work and home. So it's this very unhealthy mix and blend that uh, ends up encroaching on home, on life, in completely unrealistic and unreasonable ways. So we wanted to build tools that does something else. But we can't do that unless we also accept these other values. So that's the other part of sort of the broader perspective here is that it's not just enough to have better habits. It's not just enough to have better tools or techniques. Unless those things are grounded in better values, you're lost. And I like the point you brought in your book that said that even as an owner, if you're saying, okay, I'm going to send out this email on on a Saturday or or late at night, and I don't want anyone to respond to it, I'm going to send it out on, on an asynchronous platform just whenever you get around to it. But just the fact that the owner's doing that sends a signal to everyone else. It talks about the culture you're creating around you too that that says, hey, I, I'm up, I'm doing this. Even though I, I say that, you know, I don't want you to, you, you can't really get over that boundary. Everyone's going to assume that, okay, that's the expectation, right? Absolutely. Workaholism trickles down. Everyone yeah. mimics what's higher up in the hierarchy. So this is the excuse I often see from a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, I just, I'm so passionate about my business. I just love it so much that that's why I work 110 hours a week. But of course, my employees, like they're free to work 40 hours a week. Oh, come on. No one is going to look at that and have that be the outcome. Anyone who wants to do well at a company, they'll look to what leadership does, not what they say, what they do. And then they'll try to copy that and they'll try to impress according to the values that's being projected. So I think that's one of the reasons why this idea of a calm company, it has to come from the top. Now, you can do all sort of self-defense techniques and they can be very helpful. And we offer a bunch in the book. But to truly arrive at a calm company, you have to have a calm executive. You have to have a calm leadership. And that calmness... I mean, as we talked about, particularly in the US, particularly in tech startups, is really sadly quite rare and hard to come by, which is why we're trying to attack these the values that underpin that level of, of crazy, right? That if we can somehow uh, entice that executive, those uh, entrepreneurs, uh, perhaps not once they've been through the whole mill, but earlier in their careers to look at a broader set of values that they could possibly adopt and not end up um, being those executives that work 100 hours a week and and thus enticing everyone else to do it. Uh, Because the thing is, the habits you set early on are the habits that stick. Mm -hmm. It is very rare for any entrepreneurs who, who set a mad schedule of working 100 hours a week to somehow think that they can work less when the, what, the company is about to go public or is public. Like, like once the success arrives, can they actually work any less if they've set the habits and trajectory early in their careers for not doing that? No, they can't. The vast minority of people are able to break out of that. Yeah, we, we've seen that theme even in, in other ways too. Of, of These aren't just like add-ons you can do. It's not just like a culture hack. You can say, okay, offer these benefits or, or close on the office here. Like it's got to be deep in the culture and from the beginning that it's set up the way. You can't just turn your your system into say, okay, now we're going to be remote. We're going to support remote workers. Like it just doesn't happen like unless everyone's committed to it and you're already practicing those, those details. That, that's a part of it. Yeah, it, it has to be authentic. It can't be veneer. It can't be trinkets. Right. And I think that that is the... 
unfortunately, very successful ploy that particularly a lot of tech companies have used for a very long time. Hey, look how fun we are. Non-hierarchical. Mm. We have a ping pong table and like there's funny colored chairs and like they can all spin around. Like, isn't this great? Oh, we have a chef too. Oh, yeah, it just happens to be that they serve dinner at seven. So if you're here at seven, you'll get a nice chef's dinner. Like, what kind of benefit is that? That's a company benefit, not employee benefit. All these mm-hmm. things are ploys to keep people trapped at the office. And it's bullshit. And it's one of the things that we um, tell people about. Like, what do the benefits look at, like at Basecamp? They're all about getting people out of the office, yeah. about enjoying life away from the office. Because what we've learned over the past 20 years is that the best, most creative, most engaged workers, they aren't the ones you could keep trapped the longest in the office. It's quite the opposite. The fact that you can get someone to show up for eight hours of work, four or five days a week, well-rested, uh, well-exercised, well-read, well-entertained, uh, well-connected to their community. These are far superior workers if we are to be so crass about it. I think we really shouldn't because this is just a better way to live. I mean, that in the deepest sense of the word, that we can actually have opinions about what a better way to to live and work is. And, and, and these are those opinions. But even if you just did the cold, hard analysis, I think this analysis is just better. If you look at the retention rates, for example, of a company like Basecamp, I think our average uh, tenure is, is more than five years at the moment. And the industry average is 18 months. How much money do these companies spend on hiring, training, and well, firing and severance and all these other things that go into the constant churn of having an 18-month average tenure. Astronomical sums, right? But it's like, there's always money for that. There's never (laughs) money enough to to give people sort of the proper time off or parental leave or any of these other things. Never money for that. Always money for hiring. Yeah. One of my favorite rants in the book has to do with being a family. You know, people say, hey, we're one big family here at the company. So tell us about what you think about that. Yes, I think we're just a big family is one of the most insidious and um, harmful ploys that company owners can pull. And the reason they pull that is they want you to do something you don't really want to do out of a sense of obligation. We are hardwired as humans to generally think, well, we need to take care of our family. We need to take care of each other in our family, and we need to go above and beyond, right? So when a company invokes that notion that they're just a family, they're trying to essentially get you to extend all that love and care to what? Profits? Revenue? Saving a customer? None of these things amount to anything that's worth pulling that card of the family. And more importantly, it's not exactly like it's a two-way street. When the company says, we're a family, does that mean that they will just love you unconditionally? That they will forgive everything that you do? That they will treat you uh, with all the the care and respect that you would hope that the most functional families would have for each other? Of course not. You will be fired the second that's expedient for someone who says, oh, we're just a big family. They'll exploit you under the guise of the family for as long as that's needed. And then they will absolutely dump you the second it's not. So 
Family, for me, being invoked in a work setting is one of those huge red flags where it's not even always evident, I think, to the person who says it, to the executive or the company owner who said, oh, we're just all a big family. But it's illuminating. It's one of those things that reveals an entire value system below that statement where you can just go like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, and it, it it shows some lack of self awareness to realize that you know we're not a family. Like we're we're here to do business. We're here so that you we can all make some money to live off of and have fun. But that's about as deep as it's going to go. We can be friends. We can have relationships outside of that. But at, at its core, that's what we are. Right, and most people they have a family. Yeah, <laughs> they're not interested in supplanting their actual family with this uh, fake corporate family, right? And as you say, it is more than good enough to simply show up for work 40 hours a week to do diligent, creative, great work that's respectful, engaging, all these other things that we've talked about. This is enough to make a great business. In fact, I'd say uh, more business would be far greater if they realized that these were just the ingredients that it took and they didn't have to squeeze the lemon so hard in all these other ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So saying that the, the company is not a family is not at all a diss. It's not like, oh, work isn't important where you spend eight hours of your of your day every day is not important or that you shouldn't take it seriously or you shouldn't be engaged. None at all. It's just that it's work. It's not mm-hmm. your family. And if you are to rank the two, it should be very clear in almost all circumstances that number one is your actual family. Well, wow, this has been uh, fantastic to talk through. What I want to end people with, is if they're really looking for an action item to take, Obviously, getting the book, reading through it, going through things. But for companies that are in the middle of this that have already started to talk about it, we've had people on from the Center for Humane Technology talking about the design of products. We've had people on talking about B Corps. Do you know of any other groups or ways that if companies really want to latch on to these these ideas of the, the calm company as you guys talk about, are there any other ways they can join that movement? I think the examples you give are good. We haven't actually at Basecamp pursued any of those examples. We're doing it more sort of just on our own ethics and, mm-hmm. and our own values. Um, and I can see how that's that's sometimes hard. So it's, it's hard to give sort of quote-unquote actionable advice to companies who are currently stuck in, in crazy ways. Mm-hmm. Because it, it really is quite difficult to reform an organization, an organism that's already enmeshed and entangled in a sort of bad set of, of values because oftentimes those values are also expressed in who owns the company and how the capitalization is done and so forth. So I try to focus more of my energy not on existing companies that are behaving badly in the sense or any hope that I'm going to speak some truth to the people who are actually in power to, to make something different. Um, I try to speak to the next generation. So people who are starting companies right now or who just started a company or who run a small company, that early phase where they still have the power and probably still have a lot of questions about what kind of company do we want to be. Right. This is when you're at the uh, soft clay level. Once you reach 150 people and millions in revenue, you're no longer soft clay. You're a little bit more like porcelain. You're quite fragile and maybe you'll crack if we try to bend too much. And like you said in the book too, the company is a product. And if you if you get in there and you realize you have all these things that are about you, like to if you see a product that's just messed up all around, like your first instinct is, well, let's trash it all and start over again. Um, so you can't really do that with the company; it becomes much harder. 
It is. And sometimes I think what you realize too is, I can't change this. That's mm-hmm. an okay conclusion to, to arrive at. Say you read this book and you go like, yeah, I'd really like to work at a company like this. It's not the company I currently work at. Now, you can absolutely try. And I think uh, it's n- noble to attempt to try to change the organization you're already in. Can we be more like this? But at some point, you also got to sort of accept that it is hard to, to bend porcelain. And maybe it's time to find an organization that's a bit more like the soft clay where you can actually leave an imprint. You can actually leave uh, a change and and structure this, which is, I mean, in many cases, the argument for um, for startups, for new companies and new entrepreneurs. And I understand that that's not an avenue that's open to to all. And there are also good things about large porcelain structures. They maybe they pay well, or, or they seem more secure, or there's these other benefits that can come from large company employment. Uh, and I respect that. And, and there are different people who for a different time in their life can do different things. Um, but if you have the opportunity, if you have the flexibility to make an imprint, find a place where you can. Well, fantastic. David, it's a great place for us to end. Uh, I've loved this conversation. I've gained a lot of encouragement from it. And I hope that people listening in feel the same way. That, like, yeah, this is something that we can aspire to. We can say... We, we've reached enough. Uh, we can't have calm companies out there and we, we can enjoy things at work. It doesn't have to be crazy. So I, I like what you're saying. I like your message and um, we hope to uh, continue to partner with you in that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, if you're the kind of person who listens to the very end, you must be a fan. Now we are building a team of people who really love what we're talking about who want to go deeper. If you want to interact with guests, drive the content of Work Minus and give feedback on our work before it goes public, send an email to neil at workminus.com. It's N-E-I-L at workminus.com and I'll get you connected.